0: come now this morning to the third therefore of Hebrews 12 and 13 the first Hebrews 12 verse 1 therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses let us run the race set before us Hebrews 12 verse 12 therefore strengthen those who are weak so they can run the race well as we run it together and now here at the end of chapter 12 therefore how are we to serve God as we run this race Kelly said that I should remind you that I have given you this illustration before, but I don't have a better one, so I'm going to reuse it. So when I played soccer in high school, there were times that I wanted to quit. All of you who've played sports probably at some point or another have had that sense, right? It's hard. It's difficult. What's the point? Is it worth continuing on through? Sometimes I wanted to quit. Sometimes I wanted to say, why does it matter if I play the right way, right? If I don't get a yellow card or a red card, why does it matter if I slide into the guy from behind when we're playing soccer or something like that? If it, does it matter? What in those two scenarios would keep someone going? What would keep someone trying their best? Not getting lazy, not cutting corners, not playing other than according to the rules. I think there's two things that come together in that scenario, right? One is a sense of gratitude to your coach for the work that he's put into trying to develop the team, right? That's going to be part of what inspires or motivates you not to quit, even though the game is hard, right? And another thing that's going to help is the idea that if I put forth a half-hearted effort, that's not going to be pleasing to the one that I'm supposed to be playing for. That's not going to be uh, something that's honoring to him, right? And so, in our passage today, I think we see these two ideas coming together. We serve God with gratefulness and with reverence. And we serve God with gratefulness and with reverence in the context, as we see throughout this section, of suffering for the name of Jesus. So, How do we then serve God properly with gratitude and with fear or reverence through suffering first of all let's talk about this idea of serving God with gratitude and with fear see this here at the very end of chapter 12 verses 28 and 29 serve God first of all with gratitude it says let us show gratitude what are we showing gratitude for we're showing gratitude for the beginning phrase of verse 28 since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Well, what is that referring to? It's referring to all these ideas we've seen earlier in the book of Hebrews, which is, Jesus is better than all of these things from the Old Testament. Jesus has promised you a reward if you follow Him. That reward is participation in the kingdom which is to come. Therefore, since you are following after Him and you expect to receive that kingdom, A proper response to Jesus is gratitude we just got done with the season of Thanksgiving I know it looked different for a lot of people this year but what happens every year around this time is that people will say let's show gratitude gratitude demands an object it has to have a reason right sometimes people talk about it as though I can just be sort of generically thankful I'm grateful What does that mean apart from gratefulness being directed to someone for something, right? And so in this context, we are grateful to Jesus for the kingdom that he has promised to us. And as a result, we praise him. Now, it's important for us to recognize that we are not trying to pay God back, right? Jesus, as we think about in the season of Christmas, is the gift that God gives to humanity to bring salvation but trying to pay God back for that gift would be like if somebody gave you uh, a brand new truck right and you're like hey here's five bucks you're not paying them back right you're not even paying to fill up the tank of gas right When we view our gratitude to Jesus as trying to pay Him back, that is an insult to God, right? We're not serving Him so that we can earn our way back because we couldn't earn it in the first place. We are serving Him because He has given us everything, and so we owe Him our lives, and we are thankful, and so we serve Him, right? So it's not a transaction kind of thing, right? I'm not doing this, and I've earned back half of a percent, Of what God gave to me it's a thankfulness so I live for him right we are motivated to serve by God's kindness to us but this also is connected with not only gratitude or thankfulness but also fear or reverence right and this is even though earlier in the book of Hebrews for example Hebrews 10 19 even though Jesus has opened a way to God and made it possible for us to come close to god even though we have that access to god god is still god right and this is something that i think it's easy for us to lose sight of because we tend to go between extremes god is up here inaccessible i can't go get close to him at all he is fearful and terrible and awesome and all of those things right and then we kind of want to swing over to this other extreme over here which is jesus is my buddy right So in the last hundred years, we've seen a lot of those swings back and forth, right? God, uh, there was a, a branch of theology that basically said God is inaccessible and unknowable because he's so great. And then 20 years later, there's people saying, Jesus is my buddy, we hang out, God's the man upstairs. That's not a reverent way to talk about God. The biblical balance is, yes, God is great and mighty, but you have access to him, but you don't treat him carelessly. So... Why don't we treat God carelessly? Why do we need to serve Him with reverence and awe? Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. This ought to, in the context of all that the author of Hebrews has been saying, remind us of things like in the Old Testament where it says, for example, Moses is going through the wilderness and he sees the, the, the bush that is burning but not being burned up. That was a picture of God before his people, or the pillar of fire by which God presented himself as the sign that he was leading his people and with his people, right? So in the Bible, this idea, this image of fire is associated with God's greatness and particularly with his holiness. Why do we come before God reverently? Why do we come before God carefully? Why do we come before God even later in the service when we remember Jesus' death for us? And it says in Corinthians, examine yourself, do it carefully, don't do it carelessly, don't do it selfishly. Why does all that matter? Because God is holy, so we come before Him reverently. So we serve God with gratitude and with fear. That's the manner, the background in which our service takes place. But what does our service actually look like? We serve God properly. Okay, How do we serve God properly? First of all, with sacrifices of praise. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. All right, so why did I skip the 14 verses in between? Because I think the beginning verses of chapter 13 are going to talk to us about things that get in the way of us praising God the way we're supposed to. Particularly, verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, what gets in the way of serving God the way we should? Immorality. Immorality adultery, other kinds of sin like this. Verse 4, if I am living that way, I'm not going to praise God. Right? So let's think about that for just a moment here. There's not going to be praise for God if we are trapped and consumed and ruled by our own sinful desires. Right? Because, first of all, we will probably be ashamed about them, right? There's a sense within all of us that if we use our bodies to fulfill our lusts outside of marriage in ways that God has said not to do, there's that sense within all of us that we're doing something wrong, that God is not pleased with us, and that is going to create an obstacle between us coming before God, right? Because it's very difficult, for example, in the Old Testament. Someone would go to the pagan temple and then in, the process, in, the, in connection with their worship at the pagan temple, they would commit various acts of immorality with their bodies. You can't go from there, worshiping another god, committing immorality, and then go to God's temple in Jerusalem and say, now I'm going to offer a sacrifice to God and give thanks to God. Right? For us today, the connection is not as clear, right? We draw little boxes around things in our lives, right? So in our minds, it is theoretically possible for us to say, you know what? I could go and commit adultery over here, and then I can come into church over here, and sometimes we act like those two things would have nothing to do with each other. We should realize that that's not true, right? Right? But but we might think that, right? Or, our our culture would say, like to teenagers, do whatever with your body feels good, and as long as you do what feels good, it's good. But God has said that there are boundaries around what is an acceptable use of our body, and furthermore, in verse 4, it says, God will judge those who use their bodies wrongly, and so if I am under God's judgment... And if I am worshiping myself and what feels good to me, how can I come before God and give Him praise? The answer is I can't until that sin is dealt with. We'll talk more about how that sin is dealt with, but that's one of the first obstacles, I think, in this passage, To If we're going to sacrifice praise to God, give praise to God, thank God, sing to Him, honor Him, we have to deal with a sin like lust, adultery, immorality and all the various forms that takes in our culture, right? Well, what if you don't actually act on those desires? What if you don't actually act on those desires, right? You're faithful to your wife, or as a teenager, you don't go out and physically do something with someone that would be sinful. But in your heart and in your mind, you think about it all the time. Would that be okay? Jesus said, "If you have lust, sinful desire towards someone who is not your spouse, not your husband or your wife, the difference is not whether or not you sinned, the difference is how open and how much you send, right? I say this because there are people today who say a couple of different things. One is, as long as it's in your mind and you don't act on it, it's fine. And another is this idea that you can think a certain way in your heart and mind your entire life and you're fine in God's sight. Let me be even more clear. One of the popular ideas in our culture today is the idea that there can be someone who is a gay christian or someone who is an adulterous christian or someone who is a uh, whatever label you want to put and we look at that and we well, that ought to make us pause and say wait a minute god being in my life is supposed to change my life i just got done reading through a section of first corinthians And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, whose background was, go to the temple, commit acts of immorality, make sacrifices to pagan gods, then they hear about Jesus. But the problem for some of the Corinthians was, they still thought it was okay to do some of this, even though they had begun to believe in Jesus. So they have a guy in their church that's living in immorality, and they say, Jesus has forgiven sin so we can sin. And Paul says, no! No! You can't live that way. Why can't you live that way? Because you belong to Jesus now, right? You can't go and worship this false god and then come and worship Jesus over here. It's one or the other. It's not both at the same time. So if you know Jesus, your sin is in the past tense. What I mean by that is this. Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you. And the were some of you is this whole long list of sins, right? Adultery, immorality, greed, and stealing, and all these sorts of things. So, you cannot be in God's sight, honestly, a homosexual Christian, an adulterous Christian, a lying Christian, a stealing Christian, a greedy Christian, a disobedient to your parents Christian, and act like everything's okay between you and God. We tend to pick on particular sins that we're not doing, right? But the reality is, such were some of you, Jesus frees you from those sins, don't go back to them, and to the extent that they are still something that you love down deep within your heart, you are not going to be praising God the way you're supposed to, like verse 15 calls us to do. All right? So, we should be devoted to God, not immorality, not physical pleasure. Secondly, we should be devoted to God, not greed. Look at verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Some of you may have said, I would would never do the things you're talking about from verse 4, but I think if you're an American, you probably are guilty of verse 5 more often than you'd care to admit. We're coming up on Christmas, right? What does Christmas in our culture encourage us to do? Here's the things I want. I'm consumed with thinking about them. If I don't get them, I'm upset. If I do get them, I'm I'm immediately thinking about the next thing I want for my birthday six, eight months down the road. We're like, well, yeah, that's how kids act. Adults are that way too, right? We forget all the lessons we should have learned as kids and we think, if I get that new car, I'll be happy. If I get this different house I'll be happy if I get to do this trip if I get to whatever it is fill in the blank instead of saying here is what God has given me and I am thankful for it and anything beyond the bare necessities of food and shelter and my relationship with God is is extra and more than I deserve instead of looking at that way the way that we tend to look at it is you know, I've got this, but that thing over there is a lot better. I've got this, but I deserve more. Think about the, the uh, Israelites. I was just looking at 1 Corinthians 10 and then turning back to what the Israelites said to God when He provided for them food when they're wandering in the wilderness before they come to the promised land. We have no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Wait a second. We have no food or we hate the food you gave us. Can't be both at the same time, right? But that's how we are. God, you've given me this, but I hate it. I want that thing over there. And then we get there. I hate this thing. I want that thing over there. And I've run out of room on the platform. But the reality is, it keeps going and going and going. Why? Greed says, stuff and things and objects and accomplishments can fill the void in our souls that God designed to be filled with himself. Right? So, if I am chasing after money and what money can buy for me, instead of pursuing wholeheartedly after God, I will never be satisfied. Money is a God that holds out shiny things to us and then leaves us with a gaping hole within. And Jesus said it this way, you can't serve God and money. Technically, he said mammon, which is a a God associated with more than just coins in my hand, but all of the idea of, of, of wealth and all the things that it can buy. This is one of the temptations Satan gives to Jesus, right? Worship me, I'll give you all of this. But notice the end of verse 5. Be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You know what it's saying there? God said, I'll take care of you. What does that look like? If you love money, it looks like financial security and layers upon layers of planning and insurance and protection of all the things that you have so that nothing can touch it. Well, that sounds a lot like the story that Jesus told of the man who said, you know what? I don't have room in my barns to store all my livestock and all my grain and all that. I'm going to tear them down and build a bigger barn. You know what happened? He died. Did his money do anything for him? Did his plans do anything for him? No offense to Bob. We should plan for our futures and retirement and all those sorts of things. But the reality is... We can make every plan, every effort, every decision exactly right, according to wisdom, to make things work out for our future, and death and sickness and unexpected disaster reaches in and takes our security away from us. Plan for the future... don't act as though you know if you gave all your money away then your heart would be right because you can be poor and greedy or rich and greedy or somewhere in between and greedy right but you can't serve god money and if you love money and you are consumed by it whether it's in the amount of a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars you're not going to be praising god because you're not going to be grateful for what he's given you You're not going to be content with where you are. You're always going to want the next thing. There's also no praise for God when we are proud in our unbelief. And I would take this from verse 6, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What I think happens for a lot of us in our country is we have this sense that I can handle anything that gets thrown at me. I'm strong enough in myself to do it. This is more a guy thing than a girl thing, but it's an American virtue, right? I'm self-sufficient. If I work hard, I can make it happen. You know what the last eight months have taught us? There's a lot of things outside of our control. We are not as independent as we would like to think that we are, and it's not necessarily virtuous to be independent or self-sufficient in a proud and unbelieving way. And you know what? In our country, we have still not learned the lesson that all this should have taught us. We've gotten into arguments about political parties and all of those sorts of things, and. Instead of turning from all these things that have distracted us from the fact that we are weak and need God, we've tried to come up with new ways to drown out that reality that echoes deep within us. You need God. I need God. Whether or not there's a pandemic in the world, we needed God just as much this time last year as we do right now. To some extent, I think we've become more aware of it But then we've still tried to hide that from that and say, I can do it on my own. I don't need God, right? If I have proud unbelief, if I think I don't need God, I am absolutely not going to pray to God. I am not going to praise God because I don't want to admit that I need his help. And if he helps me, I don't want to admit that he helped me and I didn't do it on my own, right? So. Immorality and greed and unbelief are obstacles to praising God the way He wants to be praised. That's more of the internal heart issues that we have to deal with, right? In terms of proper service to God. But there's external things that, like actions that we do that are connected with what's in our hearts, right? So verse 16, Hebrews 13 verse 16 says this, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So this idea of sacrifice goes back to the Old Testament. The priest would, at the temple, people would bring them an animal, they would kill the animal, they would burn it on the altar as a sacrifice to God. Jesus has been the full and final and once-for-all sacrifice for sin, so we don't have to do that anymore. But what God wants us to do with Jesus is to sacrifice, to offer, to give to Him, not animals, but praise from our mouths, and not a tithe or an offering or all the things that they brought in the Old Testament, at least in the way that they did, but He wants us to bring instead all of the things that we do with our hands in our lives, right? And how is this described? Doing good and sharing. What does this look like? Look at the beginning of chapter 13. Verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. The more I looked at this, the more that I think that there's a parallel between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. Or rather to say that obeying verses 1 through 3 keeps you from the dangers of verses 4 through 6. Here's what I mean by that. Let love of the brethren continue. And then verse 4 talks about marriage and the marriage bed to be undefiled and God will judge fornicators and adulterers, those who commit sexual immorality. What's the connection between those two things? Love says, how can I serve this person to do what is best for them? Lust says, give me what I want to satisfy my pleasures. If we love the brethren we are not going to show lust toward the brethren and sin against and with and toward them. Does that make sense? So, the first part of doing good and sharing is asking ourselves this question, how can I show love toward those who are around me? How can I serve them versus what can they do for me? Service, not self-fulfillment love is not holding people at arm's length and saying stay away from me right perfect love casts out fear it's also not stubbornly insisting on on my rights and getting right up in people's faces and saying you do what i want or else and in our country we have people on both sides of that love means Stay away from everybody and don't get near them because you'll be safe. When in reality, part, a bigger part of the reason is because then I'll have to care about them if I see them and I see what's going on in their lives. But on the other hand, we have people who are like, love means, or maybe not love, maybe they wouldn't say it's love, but other people who are saying, you do what I want, my rights are first, everything that I want, I will get. Well, that's not love either. Biblical love says, how can I serve you? How can I show Jesus' example to you? Like we talked about in uh, Sunday school from Matthew 20, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You and I don't die for the sins of people, but we do follow Jesus' example to serve, not to be served, to love, not to show lust and fulfill our own desires and what we think is best for us. The second thing is from chapter 13, verse 2, where it says, Don't neglect to show hospitality. This is generosity, not greed. So what's the, what's, why is there a contrast between love of money and, and hospitality and contentment? If I love money, you know what my goal and my object is? Protect what I have, get more, no one can touch it. If I show hospitality, what does that mean? Somebody's going to get dirt on my new couch. Somebody's going to track mud in my clean house. Maybe your house is not clean, I don't know. But uh, it's an ongoing project if you have kids, right? Um, I don't say that to speak badly of my wife, just to, it's a full-time job. The point is, we want to protect what we have. Greed says it's mine and you can't touch it. Hospitality says it's God's and I'm going to share it with you. Or it's not safe to invite people over, right? If I invite my neighbor who I don't know a lot about, he might say something that... I didn't want my kids to hear, or he might do something that I don't like, or he might steal something from me while he's at my house. They say we don't think that way. I'm sure probably some of us have thought that way. So we don't want to open up our homes, we don't want to open up our lives because it's risky. And hospitality says, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, the idea of a stranger in our society is more like someone you don't know. The idea of a stranger in the biblical context has more to do with those who are different from us, who are... Um, so, like, in the Old Testament, someone who was from another country, not among the Israelites, would have been considered a stranger, right? So let's say they were from Egypt, or let's say they were from Syria or wherever, they weren't an Israelite, right? They were not, and I want to be very clear, because sometimes people misunderstand this about the Bible, God did not say, don't marry people from other countries, Israelites, because of some sort of racial superiority thing. God said to the Israelites, don't marry someone from Egypt or from Syria or from Canaan because they worship idols, and then you're going to want to worship idols. So it was a religious protection, not an ethnic, genetic kind of protection, right? But that didn't mean, and the Israelites sadly misunderstood that, and instead of saying, I can't marry this person because they worship idols, they then took it to the extreme of, and I will do nothing good toward that person. Right? And sometimes we've had that attitude in the church. Not because we're Israelites and we can't marry people who aren't. Um, it, the church is made up of many different uh, backgrounds, right? The state you're from, where your family originally came from, all those sorts of things. But sometimes we've acted as though I will not show kindness or help toward this person over here because they're different from me in the same way that the Israelites were hard-hearted toward foreigners and strangers and those in need in their society. Now, this is difficult because there are people who say, if you just throw money at the problem, you'll fix it, right? And that doesn't work. But we then sometimes say, well, then I'm never going to do anything because throwing money at it doesn't work, so I'm never going to do anything. So let me give you a practical illustration of what this might look like. Is your view of those who are immigrants to our country shaped more by what you hear on a particular news channel or read on a blog, or is it shaped by the ethics that God taught the Israelites in the Old Testament as filtered through what Jesus taught in the New Testament? Let me put it this way. If you think that the biblical solution or or best example of how we're supposed to treat people outside our country is to set up a wall and kick them out in every case that's not really a biblical idea that's an american political idea now i will grant you that countries have to defend their borders and all that sort of thing but if that then leads us to be hard-hearted toward people because we're like nobody's going to get in because we don't want bad people getting in That's completely opposite to what the Bible says. It says, help the stranger and the foreigner, help the orphan and the widow. And in fact, in James it says, this is true and undefiled religion to help the orphan and widow in their distress and to keep yourself unspotted by the world. So what would a practical application of this be for us? It would be to ask ourselves, knowing that abortion is an evil, Do I only spend time arguing about it online, or do I go help women at a place like the Women and Teens Ministry up in Pontiac? Do I go and help there? Do I give them money to help meet their needs? Do I spend more time arguing with people about intellectual things that I'm not going to persuade them of, or do I actually help people who are in need? Ask yourself this question. Do I know any families who are immigrants, maybe in my neighborhood, maybe from my work, Do I view them as a threat to America's sovereignty, or do I view them as people who need to hear the gospel and that I can minister to? Hospitality certainly can be inviting people over to your home for a meal, but it extends far deeper than that to the attitudes of our heart, giving versus greed, kindness versus selfishness, all of these sorts of things. What's the third way that we do good and share? Verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Well, this is the one that's set in opposition to unbelief. What does unbelief say? In contrast to verse 6, what will man do to me? Unbelief says, what will man do to me, right? I'm not willing to go to prison. I'm not willing to be put at risk. I'm not willing to be honest about what jesus said and what i believe because it's dangerous for me and what hebrews called the readers of the book to do was this your fellow christian who's sitting in jail because he preached the gospel go visit him do you know what that will do it will make you a target too because people will say hey you're with that guy that's the opposite of what peter did right peter said don't know the man never heard of him And in contrast, there were those in the church who went to fellow Christians in prison at their own expense because it wasn't like they had a nice place to stay, they just couldn't leave. It was, if they didn't take you food, you weren't going to eat. If they didn't take you clothes, you didn't have anything to wear. If they didn't have some way to stay warm, you were frozen at night, right? So they went and ministered to the needs of people who were in prison because they preached the gospel and followed Jesus faithfully which is the exact opposite of unbelief. Because it's trust in God saying, I'm doing what God wants. So two applications of that for us. I don't want to get into arguments about masks or not masks. But I do want to talk about the attitudes that we have toward people around us. Our world says, I will not do anything that's risky, that affects my safety, because it's dangerous for me. And all I would urge you is this. Continue to minister to the people around you with wisdom and with carefulness and in love, recognizing that it will be risky for you. There were Christians in times of plague and disaster in the past, who said, you know what, I'm going to go talk to this person who needs to hear about Jesus, and they could spit on me and say, get out of here. They could reject me. I could catch what they have. And I'm not saying ignore all health guidelines or any of those sorts of things. I'm just saying we have this message constantly drummed into us. If you catch coronavirus, it is the worst possible thing. The worst possible thing is dying without Jesus. And if your fear of whatever means that that outweighs you telling people about Jesus and they never hear about him, we have chosen safety over pleasing God. Now, again, wisdom, right? If you're in your 80s, you probably have less freedom to do that wisely than someone in their 30s, okay? Okay? just statistically speaking. But I very much appreciate those of you who are in your 80s who throughout all of the restrictions and difficulties of our present society have continued to minister to your neighbors and be a great example to the rest of us. And some of us need to stop using this as an excuse to sit at home and play video games and watch TV and listen to podcasts that are just like news radio or whatever, or even good podcasts and say, how can I get out and reach my neighbors? How can I minister to them? I'll be honest with you, I don't know all the answers to that, right? I think we have to have a measure of respect for the fact that if somebody doesn't want you coming into their home, you can't like go beat on their door until they open their door and let you in, right? I think we recognize that. But just because ministering to people looks different than it did 50 years ago, doesn't mean we stop trying, right? One more application from this idea of ministering the prisoners. The actual meaning was, go visit the prisoners. So let me ask you this. Do you know any Christians who are suffering because they're Christians? And by that, I don't mean Christians who are having to navigate whether or not to have a service in places where they've been told not to have a service. I mean, that's like a very low-grade level of persecution. I'm talking about people who have said, you're going to lose your job, your freedom, and everything you have. Somebody like John Bunyan, right? Right? John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he preached the gospel in the woods in the dead of winter, freezing with a small group of people, and for that he was thrown in jail. He spent most of his adult life in jail. He had a daughter who was crippled. He had children who died. He had a wife who had to take care of all the kids because he was in jail simply for preaching the gospel. If you knew someone like that, would you go visit him, knowing that it would make you a target too? That's not where we're at in our society, so that seems very far away from us, but it could be down the road, or at the very least, it should urge us to pray for and think about how we can minister to the needs of Christians who are suffering for the gospel in other places around the world, right? So let's think about specific ways we can apply this to our lives. So what does it look like to serve God? The backdrop is gratitude and fear. Thankfulness to God for what he's done, reverence that he's still got. The specific way that it looks is both from the heart attitudes that spill out in what we say, praise to God, and then the actual actions that we take, doing good and sharing. But the context in which this takes place is this idea of suffering. Why, what, what does that have to do with this? Why do we need to serve God even through or in the midst of suffering? Look at verse 9. There's a warning, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. If you give in to false teaching, the minute it becomes hard to believe what's true, your faith may not be real. There's several possibilities. One is, like Peter, for a moment you deny Christ and turn back to him, right? Another is, if the moment things become hard, you say, you know what, instead of following Jesus, I'm going to start saying things that are different from what he said, and that continues for a long period of time, you ought to start asking yourself, do I, did I really ever know Jesus, and do I actually love Him, right? Giving into false teaching means your faith may be false. Serve God through suffering, secondly, because Jesus Himself suffered. Verse 12. Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Or even back to Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus suffered. Paul and Timothy suffered. I think it's really interesting that right after Paul says in chapter thirteen, verse three, remember the prisoners, and right after he says, um, Jesus suffered, he says in Hebrews thirteen, twenty-three, which we'll look at next week. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. Released from what? Timothy was in jail for preaching the gospel. And we know Paul was in jail a lot for preaching the gospel, right? We know that from other passages in the New Testament. So, Jesus suffered for his faith. Paul and Timothy and others of the apostles suffered for their faith. The early church suffered for their faith. And this would say, so will you if you follow their example. Look at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. What's the result of their conduct? They ended up in jail for preaching the gospel. And yes, God also rewarded them, but if you imitate them, what's the likely result? You are going to face opposition and persecution too. I'm not saying we seek it out, I'm not saying we have some sort of strange death wish or desire for life to be difficult, but we have taken the testimony of the New Testament and turned it on its head, and we have people who get up on TV and on the radio and online and they say, if you follow Jesus, everything is better. You'll get a big car, you'll have a nice house, you'll have everything you ever wanted, And the testimony of the New Testament is, if you follow Jesus, your life will be harder, but the reward is far greater than anything this world has to offer. So are you willing to make that trade? This commands, follow the example of those who followed God faithfully, ended up in prison, but rejoiced anyway, and continued to follow after God. Furthermore, we see this idea that God has given godly leaders to watch for your soul. We see this in verse 17. I think this really helps to explain verse 17, because there are pastors who have taken verse 17 and been like, you've got to do what I say, because I'm the one in charge. That goes against what we saw in Matthew 20, serve, not lord it over people. And it goes against what we see here, because it's not follow me simply because I have this position. It's follow me because I'm following Christ, and I've suffered for Christ, and you're going to be there too, and I'm trying to help you get ready. So obey and follow your leaders. So what's the challenge for me in that? I haven't experienced what Paul experienced. I haven't experienced what Timothy experienced. But I can follow Paul's advice to Timothy, which is to be an example to the believers. Despite my age, despite all those sorts of things, i can do my best to be an example for you and god calls each one of you to be an example for the others in the church of following jesus faithfully even through suffering our suffering tends to be physical more than actual persecution but it can be suffering nonetheless why did god give those leaders they keep watch over your souls as though those who will give an account So, if I see that it seems like you are being ruled by lust or by greed or by unbelief, I have a biblical obligation to come and talk to you about it. Because if I don't, God is going to evaluate when I stand before Him and say, Why didn't you warn them about the danger of their souls? It also means that if we are headed towards some particular type of persecution, I have to be willing to say, I'm going to do that even though it's hard for me, even though it costs me, costs my family. That's a heavy burden, but I think that's what this passage calls us to do. So it's not follow me because I'm just up here saying stuff. It's follow me because by God's grace, hopefully I'm being an example for you, right? And the same ought to be true for all of us. We ought to aspire to that. What enables me and others who lead in churches to do this with joy and not with grief, which is unprofitable? Prayer. Why do we pray? Because God can deliver those leaders even from their own suffering through your faithful prayers. Paul says in verse 19, I urge you all the more to do this so I may be restored to you the sooner. What does sooner mean? If you do pray, God will answer it sooner. If you don't pray, God may not answer it sooner, right? What was the result of their prayers? Timothy had been released. Paul was released and had opportunity to serve God again. God hears prayer, and prayer works, and we should do it. And that is part of how we can, in the context of the church, make the heavy burden of leading the church lighter Because it's not like everything that God says we're fighting against, right? Because going back to before, if we pray, we're submitting ourselves to God and His authority. We're not saying, I can do this on my own, I'm going to go my own way. I didn't talk about those verses about the altar and all that in verses 10 and following. So let me talk about those briefly now when it says we have an altar from those which serve the tabernacle have no right to eat I think he has in mind the Lord's table the Lord's table is something that we have opportunity to come and share in not because we were born priests not because we were born Israelites but because Jesus has offered salvation and we have accepted that salvation and we have committed to follow after him we have a right to eat from that altar What's on the altar? Verse 11 says in the Old Testament system, they would kill an animal, they would pour its blood over the altar, and then they would burn the body of the animal outside the camp. Well, What does the next verse say? Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, his blood on the altar of the cross, his body was sacrificed on the cross outside the gates of the city. The very one-for-one one kind of picture here. And when we observe the Lord's table in a few moments, what's going on there is this. We are remembering Jesus' death, the, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood on our behalf. We have the privilege of sharing in that which the priests of the Old Testament and the Levites and all of them, they didn't have the opportunity to share in that. But sharing in that means this. Verses 13 and 14. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here do we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Why do we serve God? We talked a lot about the how and the what, but why do we serve God? His kingdom is there. But to get to his kingdom, there is the path of suffering. And so I would urge you to think about this as we take the Lord's table. If I drink this cup and eat this bread, I am committing myself not only to follow Jesus when life is easy and I get what I want, I am committing to follow Jesus even when life is hard and suffering is involved. And if you feel like you're not ready to say that today, then I would say don't take that today. Think about it. Pray about it. Deal with one of these sins we talked about that maybe is lurking in your heart and soul. And we will not think less of you than that because this is a sobering thing, a serious thing. We do it not carelessly, not thoughtlessly, but in reverence to God, out of gratitude for what He's done, seeking Him as His people, headed to the reward of His kingdom, but living a certain way on the way there. Let's pray. Dear God, You are our God. May we all be able to say that honestly and truthfully and openly. We want to love and serve you, give us the grace and strength to do that. It is a calling, it is not a walk through an amusement park. It is a journey, it's not a, I did it for five minutes and now I'm done. It is a burden, but it is a joyful one, because at the end of it, and all through it, there is you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these things to heart. May they affect what we do even this week. In Christ's name, amen.